the time I spent with Mandela uh, brought something to me that uh, I hadn't understood before. And uh, I think many decades later, I'm still trying to decode what Mandela represented. I remember a conversation I had with him when I was Minister of Reconstruction and Development. And he asked me about the RDP of the soul. And uh, his view was that we are very wounded as a society. So whether you thought you were superior or inferior, we are still carrying a wound. And this wound festers in our society. And uh, he says we need to heal. And uh, I think in my naivety, I said that uh, they don't measure healing, Madiba. They measure how many houses and clinics and schools and jobs we've delivered. And so we never really took that conversation forward. And many decades later, I understand today that in fact we are a deeply wounded society. Mm -hmm. In fact, we are a deeply wounded world. You know, look at what's happening in the United States. You know, people are talking about walls. They're homophobic. They, you know, gender violence is in the rise, and racism and fascism is in the rise. Look at Europe. You know, the type of you know right-wing populism about the difference between us. And I think back and think of Mandela and what he represented, he represented the thread of humanity that we all come from one place, from one source. And so I sort of reflect on that and think, in fact, the most important thing in my, in, that I have learned is that my, my knowledge compared to my ignorance, that my ignorance is so great. There are so many things I have to learn about. And what Madiba experienced in those 27 years in jail was the freedom to go within himself, to merge the boundaries of our human physical being, our emotional being, our psychological being, and understand that under those layers of emotions sits a grand spirit, which is a fragment of divinity. So when Madiba walks into a room, you see that spirit of him. And you engage that and you feel safe. He's like the grandfather. He's like the son. He's protecting us, enlightening us. And I ask myself the question, how did we go so horribly wrong in the last 24 years? And I understand today that changing the system is not enough. That in fact, the more important question is to change the human being. And that is the true lesson and triumph and the DNA of what Mandela's legacy was. Uh, is saying to us, go within yourself, find out who you are, find your roots, find your purpose, and then you will shine. You'll be a diamond that's mm. been polished. And so I think today in writing that article, I'm trying to understand my true purpose. 
And my greatest teacher, teachers are people that have cannot read or write, actually. They've never been to school, like Gubi, a San knowledge holder, a wisdom keeper. You know, is in a crowd, you won't see him. If you see him sitting down in a home, you won't notice him. He'll just look like an old grandfather whose age shows through the wrinkles in his face. But if you know yourself, you connect to his spirit, and there you'll find wisdom and knowledge. In fact, the key to the puzzle of what faces us in the world and how we should deal with the big challenges coming of climate change, of corruption, of the destruction of our environment. And so I wrote that article in order to say to people that uh, look beyond the cover of the book and try to understand the deep tissue of the knowledge and wisdom that sits in our own roots. Let's, let's talk about the deep tissue of South African society and what lies at the heart of that pain, of that hurt. Because as you say, if we're to resolve these tensions, this anger, this hatred, we have to get to the bottom of who we are as South Africans. And I'm wondering what somebody like Gubi would have to say about something as simple as the land question. It sound, it, I say simple, but it, it really undermines just how much it lies at the center of the reasons why people are so divided. So Gubi's view would be only God owns the land. We are stewards of this land. We have a, a, a sacred relationship with the land. Therefore, the land is sacred. When Gubi sees a forest, he doesn't see timber to be cut to make a profit. He looks at the spirit of the forest, the spirit of the land, the spirit of the mountain, of the rivers, of the oceans. So Gubi's view, and this is part of the history that we haven't understood. You know, Gubi comes out of a tradition and 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 it really is our oldest living ancestor. In fact, if you're looking for the Garden of Eden of modern Homo sapiens, who we are, it was southern Angola, northern Namibia, and western Botswana. This is where the Bushmen lived. And these are the oldest of our ancestors. So if you look at him, he lived when there were no borders. There were no fences. When, where they were hunter-gatherers, they, they, they hunted their food. They prevented from doing that today. You know, so we, we, we have desecrated their lifestyle. So what would he look at it and say, you know, I look at the animals, and when I hunt, it is a very sacred process where I talk to the animal, the elant. I engage with the airline, ask it to give up its life. I will run alongside it for days, and it will give up its life in order to f for me to feed my community. So Gubi's approach to, to Mother Earth is that we cannot own anything. It should be used productively and respected and used in order for us to nourish our lives. So his view on, on land is that the land belongs to the people. And eventually the land belongs to all, belongs to the divine.
So the notion of private property does not exist in Gubi's culture. And basically, what we're saying here is a knowledge and understanding of ecosystems, and that includes different societies getting to know one another and respecting one another's roles in whatever community that we occupy. A- a- am I correct in, in, in understanding yes. it like that? The, that the, the greed of consumption, as you say in your article, is actually what separates us. Absolutely. So Gobi's in his culture, you know, in his Nora's knowledge system, they do not take anything that they do not need. And it's always a reciprocal relationship. I will put back in order to take. So there is always that partnership with, with Mother Earth. Now, we live in a society where, of course, like in South Africa, where land does belong in private hands or in state hands or in communally, tribally held land. And so we have to face that reality. So in this South African reality, the issue of land is fundamentally important. So how would Gubi look at that? And I would say that, you know, do we go back to a debate about who stole whose land, who committed the original sin, or would Gubi say, what is the right thing to do now? The right thing to do now is to share the land so that people who, are, who have no jobs, people who are hungry, are able to cultivate the land in order to grow food to feed themselves. So Gubi would understand that about how we need to create an ecosystem where we can get a conversation, for example, between black farm workers and white farmers to say, these families of farm workers have over many generations built the wealth of you as a white farmer. Now, how would you look at a reciprocating that in sharing the land? So part of it is, would you put some land on the table? Would you help them develop the skills and the capacity to grow their own food to earn some additional income? And perhaps hoping that these farmers would become, uh, farm workers would become eventually bigger farmers because many of the children of white farmers are not wanting to go into farming. So I would look at these traditional knowledge systems as providing us guidance on how we would use the land, how we would create a life for ourselves based on these ancient indigenous knowledge systems. You, You were saying that he says part of the problem is the lack of respect for culture, mm. our culture, and that then is then open to interpretation. What do we mean when we say our culture? Obviously, depending from which prism you're asking the question. So how do we get to a point where, I mean, if the rich and the poor are naturally divided, not only because of a competition for resources, but because we do not even see each other as kins. Well, I think the, you know, if one looks at uh, at history, and uh, if you look at the history of Africa, you know, 
the last 500 years we've lived under the shadow of slavery, of colonization, of apartheid, of a very brutal system of exploitation where our people were treated as commodities to be traded, exchanged and abused. And I think that one of our fundamental challenges in, in, in Africa is that we think we have no history beyond those 500 years. And part of this is to try and get back to understanding what existed. And what existed was something great, as civilizations that were so beautiful and so powerful, just across the border here, the great Zimbabwe and the Monomatapa Empire. You go, you look through you know, West Africa and you discover the Benin kingdoms, the Timbuktu, you go through Nubia and you the Nubian king, you go back to Egypt. I mean, a lot of the knowledge of the world comes from Africa, not just us being the cradle of humanity and we left here to go and colonize the world, but a lot of the knowledge of who we are came from here. So how do we learn about this? You know, I mean, I was in a university the other day and talking to young people, and I asked the question, how many of you have read Credo Mutua? You know, there were two. We're not studying our own heroes. He's a prophet. He's probably one of the greatest spiritual leaders of our time in Africa and is recognized as that. But we don't even pay attention to him. We don't celebrate him. He's 97 years old on the 21st of July. This is a person who, if we really understood who we are, would be able to explain over thousands of lifetimes who we are. But we don't even know who he is. We rather study Napoleon. And I think this is where we go wrong. I think that what we're talking about is that in order for the Western knowledge system to succeed, it had to smash anything that competed with it. So wherever it went, you know, it goes to Asia, India, it goes to China, it goes to South America, it goes to North America, and it smashes anything it, that will compete with it. That's why there were so many genocides that were committed against indigenous people and still continue to be waged against them. Because their knowledge and wisdom is so much greater, so much more relevant for us. So I was excited when the Fees Must Fall students talked about decolonization. I was excited because it said, we have a history before colonization. But it cannot be reduced to how many textbooks are written by black people that we study in the university, or how many black lecturers. It's about understanding the roots of the roots, going back to the beginning of the beginning. And this is what great leaders like, you know, Credo Mutua, who's a Sanusi, is the highest level of traditional healer you can get in, the, in, in, in Africa. You know, the, the Gubis of this world, the Pitika and Tulis of this world. I think, can we start to celebrate knowledge that is ours? And so if you start to do that, you start to connect to answering the question about why am I so such in pain today? Why am I suffering today? You know, why am I getting addicted to drugs and alcohol or addicted to consumption that I feel 
who I am is what I own, what phone I carry, what car I drive, what house I live in. And yet, who I am is but, you know, one of the millions and millions of species that live and co-inhabit this planet. And I have to learn to coexist with that. But but you, you say in the article as well, you speak about man's compulsion for dominion, whether it's over the earth, the environment, or whether it's over one another. So there needs to be a deconstruction in order to reconstruct. And as you say, the question is, where did we go wrong? So where do we start? So the deconstruction is absolutely essential. So how would you understand indigenous wisdom? Actually, you've got to go and sit with indigenous leaders like Kubi, and you've got to experience what they what they know, which is go into ceremony with them. And that's a deep commitment to make, to understand that lineage. So part of it is where do we start? We have to go within ourselves. You know, one of the things that I'm working on creating in Eagle Valley in the Eastern Free State is a safe container for that journey within yourself, the personal, where you do deconstruct who you are. Because you have many layers that have you've built up to make you who you are, which is not really who you are. So how do you deconstruct that and then go towards a process of reconstruction yourself so that you understand not just yourself but your relationship with the other? And then how do you understand your relationship with, with the group? And then how do you understand the culture? What we face in South Africa and the world is a dominant culture. It crushes anything in before it. And it's a Western culture. It's holidays, you know, it's it's Hollywood. It's it's about creating through advertising, even through the internet, an image of who we should be rather than who we are. It's it's almost trying to force us into conforming. So what is success? What is you know what is a qualification? What is education? It forces us to conform. So we end up with a politics, with an economy, with a trade union movement, with a civic society, with a government where it's not serving society, it's society serving them and their insiders and outsiders. There's a lack of transparency. There's accumulation of power for the sake of power. And so I'm saying is that if one wants to deconstruct that to who we really are, we have to go backwards to the beginning. And understanding the knowledge that exists before colonization is an important component of that. So yes, uh, it's a difficult journey. And what Madiba always talked about is the most difficult journey you will take is the one from your head to your heart. Because that's the only way you unlock your spirit. And so if you look at the human being, is how do we break down the barriers between the physical being, the mental being, the emotional being, the psychological being, to reach the true being, which is the self within. Just a final question, Jay. I know we were speaking about young people today and the challenges that they face, not only in terms of connecting with who they are, but the world that we live in. It, it makes me wonder, though, then about our leaders, whether it's current leaders or future leaders. Are they up to the task if 
they themselves are not connecting with those indigenous knowledge systems because as you say in order as the saying goes that you can't solve a problem with the same mind that created it mm. how do we then move forward with the kind of leadership we have now we should stop paying lip service to indigenous knowledge systems there's a deep wisdom there that we need to listen to to engage to understand in everything that we do unfortunately many of our leaders are just trying to fit into a system that is dying the economic system around the world that has generated the type of inequality where you know 80 people control more wealth than 3.5 billion people or South Africa where three white men control more wealth than half the population is unsustainable. We are living in an ecological emergency. We cannot continue to do agriculture in the way, old way that we do where we poison the land, where we poison our water resources and still leave half our population you know, feeling in, in a state of hunger. We have to rethink things, you know, in in China now, even the Communist Party of China has talked about moderate prosperity as a goal. So if we want to go forward, we have to unlearn many things. We have to relearn things and remember things that we did in the past. We've got to find a different relationship with Mother Earth where we use her resources sustainably. They are finite. They are not infinite. And they cannot be there just to serve us as a generation. They are there as a birthright of all the generations that come after us. And if you look at it today, if we want to live like Americans, we'll need four planets. We don't have that option. We don't have a, plan, a planet B here. The second thing we have to do is understand that the system of politics, of society, of economy, has been patriarchal, hierarchical, and violent against women. That if we want to find a balance, a harmony in how we build this world, we have to understand the sacred feminine, something Mandela understood and respected in his entire life, that what you would find within Mandela is a balance between the sacred feminine and the sacred masculine, the way in which he carried love, he carried nurturing, he carried compassion. That was, for, for women, is not just the right to equal pay for equal work, it's also respecting the difference between men and women. And so if we start to understand creating that balance is really important. And I think the final thing for me is go within yourself. And when you get up in the morning and you look at yourself in the mirror and you ask yourself the question, who am I? What is the meaning of my life? When I leave this bathroom, how am I going to carry that in my heart? That's the true legacy that you know, Mandela left for us. And decoding that my life is service. 67 years of his life was active service. It wasn't 67 minutes a year. It was, it was a total sacrifice, a total commitment that he made. And I think understanding indigenous wisdom is living with transparency, living with ambigu ambiguity, living with the idea that there's always a recip reciprocity, that what I take from someone... I must give to someone, that that relationship is a sacred balance. And that's the sacred balance we need in our lives today. And indigenous knowledge systems provides us the key to the puzzle.